Hello, I'm Jason Rugard of the Movie Mavericks Podcast. Welcome to a special summer show. Every Friday, I'll be taking a look back to the summer of 1999. This was a box office season that was amongst the most competitive and influential in moviegoing history. On each show, I'll be chronicling the performance, critical response, and historical relevance of the biggest hits and the costliest misfires that shaped the summer of 1999. Episode 3. Our first film is Notting Hill. On June 18th, the world's most famous actress and an ordinary shopkeeper come together for the most unlikely romance of the year. It's not Fergie, is it? Julia Roberts. Anytime I've tried anything normal, it's just been a disaster. Hugh Grant. I live in Notting Hill. You live in Beverly Hills. I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. Notting Hill. This film is not yet ready. Julia Roberts' star power was unquestionable by 1999. The previous few years had seen the mediocre rise of Sandra Bullock and Meg Ryan, and the thinking was that they were the heir apparent to the crown of America's sweetheart. But big hits like My Best Friend's Wedding and Stepmom proved that after a decade of A-list stardom, Roberts' appeal was in no danger of waning. Julia Roberts had two projects due for release during the summer of 1999, Notting Hill and Runaway Bride, which seemed to be the most eagerly anticipated of the pair, because it would reunite Roberts with her Pretty Woman co-star and director in Richard Gere and Gary Marshall, respectively. While Hugh Grant had been toplining a string of moderately successful romantic comedies, nothing he had appeared in before or since has reached the mass audience the way that Notting Hill did. The film opened in the second position with 27.7 million. Notting Hill was the counter-programming hit to Star Wars that the love letter was hoping to be. Its estimated 22.2 million three-day gross, not including its Memorial Day income, would make it the highest opening ever for a romantic comedy beating 1998's The Wedding Singer. And it's also the best opening ever for a Roberts film, just squeaking by the 1997 opening of My Best Friend's Wedding. Reviews were overwhelmingly positive, and the film's success was a bit of a surprise to box office forecasters that had overlooked this project while drooling at the prospects for The Runaway Bride, which would premiere later in the same summer. Notting Hill received three nominations at the Golden Globes in the categories Best Motion Picture, Comedy Musical Category, and Best Motion Picture Actor, Hugh Grant, and Best Motion Picture Actress for Julia Roberts. I saw this movie in a crowded screening during its run, and I recall really liking the movie. Julia Roberts is at her most radiant, and the supporting cast, particularly the roommate, nearly steal the movie. The audience I saw it with laughed in all the right spots. It seemed like they got their money's worth. Notting Hill, which reportedly cost $42 million to make, 
would stay in the weekly top 10 grocers for six weeks and take in 116 million at the domestic box office, making it a very profitable film for Universal and further establishing Julia Roberts as the A-list female actress of the era. I'm Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times, and across the aisle from me is this week's guest critic. Hi, I'm Leah Rosen. I review movies every week for People Magazine, and I am totally stoked to be here. Okay, our first movie is Notting Hill, and it's a charming romantic comedy about a big Hollywood star, played by Julia Roberts, Thanks. who walks into a London bookstore, meets the owner, played by Hugh Grant, and finds him unexpectedly fetching. Eventually, they do find themselves in the same bed at the same time, where their dialogue is more interesting than most of the things lovers say in the movies, because it's about the movies. There's a tricky kind of double reverse irony going on here when, instead of doing a nude scene, Roberts talks about the business of on-screen nudity. Notting Hill uses two of the most dependable formulas in the long history of romantic comedies. First, it's about how opposites attract. And second, it's about how the audience is frustrated for nearly two hours in our fervent desire to see these two nice people fall in love. There comes a point in most of these movies where the difficulties outweigh the advantages and we think we can't possibly sit through one more tragic misunderstanding or miscommunication, but we can, maybe because the dialogue in Notting Hill is literate and the actors are so charming. I really like this movie. So glad to hear that, because <laughs> I really like this movie, but I am a sucker for romantic comedy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I know girls are going to like this one. I'm glad to hear mm -hmm. boys do, too. I just think it showcases the two of them in some of the best ways they've ever yeah, it, does, it takes yeah. advantage of both their skills. He sort of is self-deprecating and mm -hmm. cute. Mm -hmm. She is the movie star you want her to be the way you think she might really be in real life. It's just, it's a good script. It really is. And you know, another thing about the movie is it's knowledgeable about film. There's a Absolutely. scene here where he wanders into a movie junket, and it was a junket something like junkets I've seen. There's a lot of dialogue where she talks about being a movie star and being the focus of attention. And also, she has a speech in this movie where the audience fell dead silent when she talked about the fact that you grow older and you lose your beauty, and someday you're a has-been. And there's a close-up of Julia Roberts looking wonderful as she right. says that, and you realize that's the reality for her and really for everyone. It's a great moment. It's a good movie. It's also what I like about this movie is it showcases London beautifully. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. that long, long, long take where they show time passing, mm -hmm. and you see mm -hmm. him walking down the same street mm -hmm. and the seasons change. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was really an elegant way to do it. Our next film is The 13th Floor. A team of scientists have created a portal to a simulated universe. You think one of them units crawled up an extension cord and killed its maker? But what they couldn't anticipate... What's this all about? Murder. ...is that the experiment... This is a mistake. These people are real. ...would have a mind of its own. You could call it the end of the world. Rated R. Opens everywhere May 28th. The 13th Floor was a science fiction film written and directed by Joseph Rosnack and is a remake of a German TV movie. It starred Craig Burko, Gretchen Moll, and Vincent D'Onofrio. After the massive success of Independence Day, Columbia Pictures was so eager to get into business with its creators, Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin, that they offered them a home for their newly founded production company, titled Centropolis Entertainment. The first film released through the banner 
was Colombia's highly budgeted Godzilla, which was viewed as somewhat of a box office disappointment due to the level of audience awareness and pre-release buzz. The 13th Floor was a project that Emmerich had flirted with directing himself, but ultimately passed on, settling instead for producer credit on the picture. Columbia positioned the film for a wide release on Memorial Day weekend, when movie-going traffic is typically high, in order to attract the widest audience possible. But the film was a dud on arrival, managing just 4.7 million in ticket sales over the long holiday weekend. Sci-fi enthusiasts were still filling up the Star Wars auditoriums, leaving the majority of the 13th floor screenings virtually empty. The tagline on the poster reads, Question Reality, which already felt dated by late May of 1999. The Matrix had exploited this angle successfully a few months prior, and even Dark Knight, released the previous year, had a similar theme. So by the time the 13th floor hit screens, its concept and advertising materials felt stale and unappealing. The marketing team failed to promote the film for its murder mystery plot with a Kafka tone. Instead, they focused on the virtual reality aspect of the plot. So filmgoers that did buy a ticket felt like a bait and switch had been pulled. The 13th floor would spend just three weeks in the top 10 before totaling out at an anemic 12 million, making it the second flop of the season behind last week's bomb, The Love Letter. I caught this movie on DVD because it was in and out of theaters so quickly, but I was surprised how much I liked it and how different it was from what the trailers had led me to expect. I also thought lead actor Craig Bierko would be a legitimate movie star. He's the guy who played the villain in The Long Kiss Goodnight and would later appear in Cinderella Man and Scary Movie 4. But he never became the box office draw that I envisioned he would. The 13th floor is ultimately forgettable and was a casualty of the early movie-going season. Our last film is Instinct. You a murderer? Oh, yeah. On June 4th, have I made your day? Enter the mind ah! of a killer. He lives with the animals. Becomes one. Why does this all end in murder? Academy Award winner Anthony Hopkins. Ah! Who's in control? Academy Award winner Cuba Gooding Jr. You're afraid to fall? Try me. Instinct. What are you up to? Therapy. Rated R. Sneak preview this Saturday. Instinct was the sole new release for the weekend of June 4th, 1999. With the continued strong run of both Star Wars and Notting Hill, Instinct settled for third place for the weekend derby, with a $10 million opening. The psychological thriller directed by John Turtletab and starring Anthony Hopkins, Cuba Gooding Jr., and Donald Sutherland would total its domestic haul at a disappointing 34 million. This was an especially harsh result for Touchstone Pictures, who had backed the film with a $60 million budget and a prime summer release date. The financial failure of this picture 
would rank it alongside The Love Letter and The Thirteenth Floor as early flops of the 1999 summer season. Instinct is a ridiculous film that features Hopkins as a man who's lived amongst the apes but has been convicted of killing park rangers. In comes Cuba Gooding Jr. as a psychiatrist attempting to find the motivation behind the killings. The wacky film argues that man has corrupted the wilderness and that we won't be content until all the world is destroyed. In an unbelievable final scene, Hopkins' incarcerated character escapes from prison using a pen to dig out a lock on a window and heads back to Africa to live amongst the wilds. Instinct is not to be confused with Fracture, another Anthony Hopkins film, this time co-starring with Ryan Gosling as the young lawyer. That film was released in 2007 to better reviews and ticket sales. Sean Connery was originally being courted for the lead role before Anthony Hopkins accepted the gig. But the real star of the picture is Stan Winston, whom created the Gorillas. Stan Winston applied the lessons learned on Congo and perfected them on instinct. The diminutive Vern Troyer was cast as the Gorilla Toddler. Troyer, a relative unknown at the time, would gain celebrity status as Mini-Me in Mike Myers' The Austin Powers sequel, Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. Instinct has all the peripheral elements of a hit. Big movie stars in Hopkins and Gooding Jr., an A-list director in John Turtletab, cinematography by Oscar winner Philippe Rosat, and a score by Danny Elfman. But the story by Geraldo de Pejo based on his novel, is a non-starter. Maybe the book was better, but the movie is a forgettable adaptation that never should have been greenlighted by the studio. I'm Roger Ebert, film critic of the Chicago Sun-Times, and joining me in the balcony... I'm Kenneth Turan, film critic for the Los Angeles Times. Our first movie is Instinct, which seems to be hammered together, I think, out of spare parts. It's like a clunky assembly of material from The Silence of the Lambs, Gorillas in the Mist, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with a little prison reform thrown in for good measure. The film is top-heavy with good intentions. And that whole Ace of Diamonds business is a complete waste of 20 minutes of the movie and feels recycled from a prison reform movie. And I never really understood how Cuba Gooding thought he was going to get Anthony Hopkins out of that prison, which he keeps talking about. I'll get you out of here. I'll get you out of here. Because after all, no matter how much truth about life Hopkins learned from the gorillas, he still did commit two murders. I know. This is one of those really uh, wake up and smell the gorillas movies. This is, uh, you know, <laughs> real life. So I kept watching this film. I had the horrible feeling that they think they've done something significant. They think this is a meaningful film. And that was really depressing. Oh, the music tells you that. It's yeah. the, got the portentous kind of bittersweet, sad, wise music under everything <laughs> as we realize what enormous truths are being discussed. And all we're sitting there thinking is, this movie doesn't make any sense. I mean, why were the game wardens trying to shoot the gorillas? Why did the guy turn violent after he leaves, lives with these peaceful animals? Uh, I could list about six questions 
uh, that fundamentally undermine the entire plot. You wonder, did these people think about this film at all? Was this on their mind? Did they know how derivative it was? Did they know how little sense it meant? Did they just decide to keep quiet, or did they just not even notice? Yeah, I was thinking, you know, Anthony Hopkins said for a long time he didn't want to do Hannibal Lecter again. Yeah. Well, if he wants to do him again, he might as well do him in this new Silence of the Lambs sequel instead of doing him here, where it's basically kind of like Hannibal Lecter light. That'll do it for this week. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back with you soon.